Good morning, Calvary friend. Today's scripture reading is found in Exodus chapter 33, verses 1, 18 through 23. It's found in page 74 of your pew Bibles. Let's go before the Lord together. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread, seven, oh, sorry. Pardon me. <laughs> Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my goodness passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away the hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Naomi. Good morning. See our, our Christ candle. Do I get a microphone? You guys don't want to hear me preach? Testing, testing. One, two, one, two. Maybe it's my fault. Well, anyway, while they're figuring that out, I see the Christ candle is not lit, and we're going to need Christ before the end of this sermon, so I'm just going to light it up real quick. All right. I think now you can hear me, yes? Okay. All right. Well, good morning again. Thanks to uh, Pastor Eric for preaching uh, last week, and this morning we finish up our Held Together sermon series. And the aim of the series uh, has been to explore the way in which Christ holds together in his person the divine nature and the human nature, and then the implications that this has for us as we relate to God and for how we live our lives. And we've been to Nicaea and Chalcedon and the Enlightenment. We've looked at the history of Israel and its relationship to the law, and through it all, the main thing that I've been trying to communicate is that when we surrender our human nature to the divine nature, the divine nature glorifies the human nature. So this morning I want to finish out this sermon series by focusing more on what it means to participate in the glory of God or to be glorified by God. Now most of the times in my sermons they'll go something like this. I'll uh, draw out some theological principle from the text, and then I will offer some words of pastoral application. But this sermon is mostly just all straight theological principle. In fact, it's, it's three theological principles. And this is such a rich text, and as I was writing out the sermon, I decided that rather than inviting you to listen to the sermon and then thinking about how this applies to your life, I want to just invite you to soak in the truth 
of this sermon and the truth of this passage. So don't let your mind race forward about like what does this mean and where do I go with this and how do I use this. Just let the truth of what God reveals to you in this passage soak into the pores of your life. And I'm going to trust that the Lord, however he wants to use it in your life, he will apply it and use it in your life. But we're going to just uh, let this truth wash over us. And I also have more pictures to finish out our sermon this morning. So for those of you that like the pictures, stay tuned. All right. So our passage this morning is from the book of Exodus. And Exodus is the story of the Exodus out of Israel. Israel's journey out of slavery in Egypt, through the wilderness, and into the promised land. And in many ways, this morning's sermon is sort of a prefiguring of our Lenten sermon series, which is going to be, that's going to be the focus of our Lenten sermon series, is looking at Israel's journey out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, into the wilderness, where God sustains and feeds his people in the wilderness, and then leads them into the promised land. So we're getting a little bit of a, a precursor of that this morning. But before we get into our text this morning, I want to draw attention to another episode, another story in Israel's history here in Exodus, Exodus 17. So if you've got your Bible there, let me encourage you just to turn back a number of chapters back to Exodus 17 in your Bible. And there's this story in Exodus 17 is going to have some relevance for us as we interpret Exodus 33. So I want to just draw attention here. I'm not going to preach from this passage, but just want to draw attention to it. Moses uh, is with the children of Israel. They've made it through the Red Sea. They're in the wilderness, and uh, they don't have any water. And so they begin to grumble and complain to Moses. And they're like, Moses, you've brought us out here, and now we're just going to die of thirst in the wilderness. And they're getting pretty irate with Moses. So in 17 verse 4, Moses cries out to the Lord. And he says, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And so the Lord says to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink." So now I want to just make a point of note here that, the, that Moses is being invited to stand with God on the rock, the Mount of Horeb, and he's going to strike the rock and water is going to flow out of it. Now, the Mount, Mount Horeb is just another name for Mount Sinai, right? So it, sometimes we can think maybe those are two different mountains, but they're, they're the same uh, mountain just referred to with different names. All right, so now with that story kind of in the backdrop of our mind, let's move to Exodus 33 because in Exodus 33, Moses is going to go up to the very top of Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, and he's going to receive the Ten Commandments. So that's what's happening in Exodus 33. But while he's up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, he makes a special request. And that brings us to Exodus 33, 18, and our first theological principle of this morning's text. The first theological principle is God's glory is too much for us. So in verse 18, Moses asks the Lord to show him his glory. Now to understand what Moses is asking for, we have to have some idea of the Old Testament concept of glory. 
The term glory comes from the Hebrew word kavod. And kavod is a, it's a rich word. It has a lot of layered meaning to it. When used in reference to God, it has as a basic idea the idea of honor or splendor or magnificence. But God's glory wasn't just some abstract character quality about God. God's glory could also be seen. It could be seen with the naked eye. It was visible around God. The, the Bible describes the Lord's glory often as a cloud that is around God. And was often seen as a bright, piercing light or a flame of fire. So one linguist helpfully defines God's glory as the luminous manifestation of his own presence. So the word kavod also, though, besides having this idea of magnificence and splendor, this visible magnificence of splendor shining as a bright light, it also had the idea of weight or heaviness. So maybe you've read or heard of C.S. Lewis's book, The Weight of Glory. And the title of the book is getting at the idea that God's glory is heavy, it's weighty. So analogously, you can think about light in the natural world. In the strictly scientific sense, light does not have any weight to it. But imagine if all the light of the sun was compacted into a single beam and then pointed straight at your head. Your head would be vaporized quicker than an ant beneath the, the mischievous little boy's magnifying glass in the backyard. Because even though light doesn't have any weight in a strictly scientific sense, it does leave a mark. And we experience this even just going out on a sunny day without proper sunscreen. We can get burned up by the light of the sun. And the glory of the Lord was like that. It was weighty. It was a luminous splendor of God's presence. And it was as heavy as God himself. Now in the Old Testament... The weighty, luminous splendor of God was awesome to behold, and it typically invoked fear, even terror, among the people that witnessed it. So we can see this in Israel's history up to this point in Exodus 33. So if you turn back to Exodus 24, another few chapters, we're going to be looking at a couple passages here. In Exodus 24, when they first get to Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, uh, Moses goes up on the mountain, and in 24.15, uh, we can read this. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain, in the sight of the people of Israel. And Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. If we go back a few more chapters to Exodus 19, we get an even more detailed picture when Israel first comes to the mountain. In Exodus 19, uh, looking in 16 through 20, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. And then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke 
because of the Lord had descended on it in fire. And the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. So you can just picture a volcano is much like what we're seeing here. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And then skipping over to chapter 20, verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid. And they trembled, and they stood far off, and they said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. So they're like, Moses, you go up and talk to him. right? You, you, you go talk to him, ask him what he wants, and then come back down and tell us, but don't make us talk to him. We're terrified of him. So the glory of the Lord is descending down onto Mount Sinai, and it is this awesome fear-inducing reality. It's described, like I said, like we see almost like a volcano, right? It's burning up the top of the mountain and smoke is billowing off the top of the mountain. And as we move through Israel's story, the Lord's glory gets no less terrifying. We can see many instances throughout Israel's history where the Lord's glory shows up and it's, it's a terrifying reality and perhaps the most poignant, memorable uh, picture of confronting and being confronted by the glory of the Lord comes in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah sees the glory. He's lifted up in a vision and he sees the glory of the Lord. And this is what he writes in Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. So he's like seeing the very throne room of God. High and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, and each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So Isaiah is confronted with the glory of God, and it's, it's going to undo him. He's, he's terrified by what he has seen. Woe is me. And five times throughout the scripture, the Lord is referred to as a consuming fire. And the point to make in all of this is that the glory of the Lord was nothing to trifle with. All of which is to say, when Moses asks to see God's glory, he's asking for a terrible, awful, awe-filled thing. Imagine asking a hurricane of fire to show you its glory. This is an enormous, even deadly request that Moses is asking. And sometimes I think we can underestimate the peril of our humanity before a holy and eternal God. God is a consuming fire. And we, along with the rest of creation, are made of wood, hay, and stubble. 
And our problem is not merely that we are sinful wood. The problem is that we are wood. God is a consuming fire. And even the mighty seraphs that dwelt in the presence of God, that Isaiah saw in his vision, they covered their faces in the presence of God. God was too much for them. Mortal created flesh cannot dwell in the presence of the eternal consuming fire. No more than a man can live on the surface of the sun. So how much less can sinful flesh? Because God is not like us, only bigger. He is the fount of existence. He is the source of all that is. He is the author of the book. And we are merely characters within it. He is holy. He is holy other. He is transcendent, eternal, almighty, infinite, invisible, immutable, immutable, immortal, beyond knowing, beyond speaking. And we can only stand the burning weight of God's glory in small and modest doses. Just like we can only stand the burning weight of the sun because we are 93 million miles away from it. If God unleashed the eternal weight of his glory upon us right now in this moment, we would be consumed. C.S. Lewis, in one of his books, my favorite book, he writes, the divine nature wounds and perhaps destroys just by being merely what it is. And if we don't understand the fear of the Lord, if that's a concept that just seems vague and I don't get get it, it's very likely because we don't understand the awesome and awful majesty of God's glory. Now, if that were the end of the story and the end of the sermon, there wouldn't be much hope, but it's not because there's more that happens here in this passage. Moses asks to see the Lord's glory, and the Lord says, yes. And that brings us to the second theological principle. God's glory is God's love. The Lord tells Moses that he will indeed make all of his goodness pass before Moses. Look here back in our text to verse 19. And he said, the Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And I want us to note the connection between the Lord's glory and the Lord's goodness and name. Moses asks for the Lord to show him his glory and the Lord says, okay, I will. I will show you my goodness and I will proclaim my name. Because the Lord's glory consists of his goodness and his name. In the Old Testament, names were significant in that they revealed the essence or the truth of the person so named. So if we cheat down into verse 30 or into chapter 34, when the Lord actually does fulfill Moses' request and does proclaim his name and pass his glory before Moses, this is the name that the Lord proclaims. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, 
abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is the glory of the Lord. So in verse 19, the Lord is saying to Moses, I will pass before you all of my glory, and my glory consists of my goodness and my loving kindness and mercy. So we might all be like, oh, phew, phew, God's glory isn't as scary as I thought. Oh, no, because look at verse 20 and then through 23. But the Lord said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. Moses will only be allowed to see the receding glory of the Lord, the Lord's back. But not the face of the Lord's glory, the full manifestation of the Lord's glory. Because even the Lord's goodness and love, if fully revealed, would be too much for Moses. The Song of Songs says that the flashes of love are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. The eternal goodness and love of God does not lessen the danger of God's glory. The eternal goodness and love of God is the danger. D.L. Moody, the famous Chicago evangelist who started the Moody Bible Institute, many of us, of course, in this area, we know about it, But he tells in his biography of an experience that he had of God's love that was so powerful in which he was so overcome that he had to pray and ask God to stay his hand. It was too much. It was too much. And St. Catherine, who I read from last week, she speaks of similar experiences that her soul was so lifted up to God in love that she felt like she was going to die. And the Lord had to draw back And move away, as it were. And we can see this even in mere human love. I mean, if you, your kids or any of you kids here, you went to the Taylor Swift concert, right? I saw some video of the, it was, there was a mom filming the Taylor Swift concert. Then she panned over to her 15-year-old daughter and her 15-year-old daughter was like, (laughs) (laughs) like she was so moved by the experience of the Taylor Swift, like it just broke her down, right? Or if you remember the old pictures of uh, going to the Elvis concerts or to the Beatles, right? Like even human love can completely unmake us. How much more the infinite love of God to behold him as he is in all of his love. We cannot stand it. It, it undoes us. It's, it's too much. When the great saints encounter the love of God, with that kind of intensity, with such weight, not even they can endure the fullness of the divine presence. God is an eternal, cosmic, burning hurricane of love. He is a Niagara Falls of goodness. And just like Moses couldn't stare the Lord's goodness and love full in the face, we could not survive if God set the full weight of his love upon us. But what then is to be done? Because this is precisely what God desires to do. He longs to pour out the fullness of his love, his glory upon us. Imagine a man made of fire 
who falls in love with a maiden made of straw. How could that love ever be consummated? This is the dilemma of God and humanity. God loves us, and he's not content to bestow his love upon us from 93 million miles away. He wants to come and make his home with us. But his love, his glory, it's, it's too much for us. We cannot endure it. So the first theological principle is that God's glory is too much for us. The second is that God's glory is his love, but even his love is too much for us. And that brings us to our third theological principle. God's glory in Christ makes us fit to receive his glory. Verses 21 through 22 give us the Lord's plan for how he is going to keep Moses alive as he shows Moses his glory. Let's look back here in our text at 21 and 22. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Verse 21, the translation that we have here reads, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And that's a fine translation, but the Hebrew preposition here could just as well be translated. It's probably better translated. There is a place with me where you shall stand on the rock. And the picture we get in verse 22 is not, go stand over there on the top of the rock, and then I will pass my glory before you. The picture is, come stand with me in the cleft of this rock, and I will shelter you with my hand as my glory passes by. Now, there's a profound irony here because the one place, the only place that Moses can safely stand when the glory of the Lord passes by is with the Lord. Because, the only, because only the Lord is strong enough to shelter Moses from the full weight of the Lord's glory. The Lord's glory was too much for Moses. So only someone as much as the Lord would be able to shelter Moses from the Lord. And only the Lord is as much as the Lord. So in order for Moses to see the Lord's glory, he would have to stand with the Lord to be sheltered by the Lord. And if the Lord's glory is a hurricane of fire, then the only safe place for Moses to stand is with the Lord in the center, in the eye of the storm. And the theological point here is that the only safe place from which to behold the glory of the Lord is safely tucked up within the source of that glory. But I said this third principle was God's glory in Christ makes us glory, glorious. So where is Christ in this passage? He is the cleft rock. In 1 Corinthians 10, 3-4, the Apostle Paul tells us that the rock that Moses cleft in Exodus 17 on Sinai to give the people water to drink 
was a type and a sign of Christ. So what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, he writes, All the children of Israel ate the same spiritual food, and they all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock, and the rock was Christ. Moses struck open the rock on Mount Sinai so that the living water could flow to the thirsty people. And now the Lord has tucked Moses safely into the rock on Mount Sinai to shelter him from the glory of the Lord. Which is to say the cleft rock on Mount Sinai in which the Lord hid Moses was a type and a sign of Christ. Christ is the cleft rock, the shelter of God given to us by God that enables us to stand in the presence of God. So when we sing the old hymn, Rock of Ages, cleft for thee, let me hide, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. That song is written about this very passage. And when we sing that song, it's appropriate to remember what it cost the rock of ages, to cleft open a space within himself to give us his life-giving blood so that we could shelter within him. And he has opened a way for us to enter into himself at the cost of his own life. In Exodus 33, on the top of Mount Sinai, Moses could not see the Lord's face. But in Christ... The true rock of which Moses' rock was only a sign. We do see the Lord's face. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul writes that whenever Moses was read, a veil lay over the hearts of God's people. But now in the new covenant, those who are in Christ behold the glory of the Lord as in a mirror. And we are being transformed by the Spirit into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Just a few verses later down, he says, For the God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Christ is the face of God, the glory of God, that transforms us by the Spirit of God day by day from the inside out. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul tells us that in this life we see in this mirror dimly. But in that last day, we will see fully face to face. And that brings us back to Christ's two natures. The vision we get at the end of the Bible, in Revelation 21, is of a holy city so full of the glory and love of God that it no longer needs an earthly sun or moon. And in that vision, the saints of God are living basking in the light of the Lamb who is the lamp of God's glory. So between Exodus 33 and Revelation 21, humanity becomes able not only to walk on the surface of the sun, but even to live within it, which is good because the sun himself is going to come and make his home with us. All right, now let's end this series where we began, with pictures. We started the sermon series with this picture, right? the divine and human natures distinct from each other. 
But as we've seen this morning, in reality, the picture is more like this. It's not just the two natures are distinct from each other. The divine nature, just by being what it is, is a threat to human nature. But God saves us from his own divine nature by clefting the sun on the cursed cross and making a way for us to hide from him within him as if within the eye of the storm so that the picture actually now looks like this. And just, amen, and just as Moses cleft the rock in the wilderness so that the miraculous life of God could flow to his people, so too God has cleft the sun so that the divine life, God's own Holy Spirit fire, could flow to us. And he has placed in us a deposit of this glorious Holy Spirit fire so that the picture now looks like this. And as we shelter within the covering care of God's cleft rock, the Pentecostal fire, the tongues of fire, begin to burn and grow within us such that we are made day by day fit to dwell in the midst of the eternal fire of God's love so that on the last great day of resurrection, on the final day of our glorification, the picture becomes this. Our final destiny as the people of God is not merely to behold God's glory from afar, or to have only to see the back of it as it passes by, but to behold it from within and become partakers and dispensers of it. I close with a quote from the book I mentioned, C.S. Lewis's essay, The Weight of Glory. And he writes this, We do not want merely to see God's beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. A cleft has opened in the pitiless walls of the world and we are invited to follow our captain inside. So perhaps the only application I have in all of this is to let your captain, Christ your captain, lead you through the fury of the divine nature into the beauty of beholding the face of God. God, thank you that you gave us Christ who is our captain. There was no way for us to get past the fury of your love. We could only see it from afar, 93 million miles away. But you have made a way for us not only to walk upon the surface of the sun, but to dwell in the very core of the sun. To see your glory from the inside out, to be shaped and transformed by it. We thank you that you have given us your Holy Spirit fire. We pray that it would grow inside of us, making us day by day more like the very image that we behold. 
God, thank you for the rock of ages that has been cleft for us. May we hide ourselves in him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.